Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. So I've asked uh, Travis Norton, who uh, is heavily involved in uh, Cato and our After Action Review Board, as well as the uh, NTOA, and uh, one of our SLP2 uh, graduates and Cato Team Leader Course Instructor, Chris Jenny, to join me today as we continue our discussion about command and control. Last episode, we talked about this a lot with uh, a lieutenant from a deputy chief's perspective, as well as a lieutenant with Brent and Ted and I. Um, the perceived and often real disconnect between those on the ground that have the situational awareness and those in the command post and how, what are some practical takeaways that we can talk about that people can do today to mitigate that problem. And it won't always go away, but some of the things that you both have seen in your own uh, personal experience, as well as your education and Travis, you travel all around the country and we've sent you a few places around the world and Chris has spent a lot of time in the last few years traveling up and down the state of California, teaching and talking to uh, team leaders and commanders, uh, as well as uh, leaders throughout the state about about these kind of issues. So let's talk a little bit about how we bridge that gap, um, which uh, I often refer to as friction, right? It's the the self-imposed friction during a chaotic tactical event. And it all starts with the call for service, right? The emergency that, that we're responding to uh, doesn't have to be a SWAT problem. It's just an emergency that patrol is responding to. And, and some of the things that uh, I know Chris and Travis and I have talked in the past in the last year or two, we've talked about as we travel around the, the state and we're seeing some trends. We're seeing some trends in first line supervisors and some of the challenges that they've had that I think, quite frankly, we've done a poor job as a profession preparing them for. And one of those things is maintaining that that balcony approach to critical incident response. And I know this is near and dear to both of you, uh, Chris, because you've helped develop our critical incident management class for supervisors, and uh, Travis, because you spent most of your career studying how to manage these these critical events. So there's a lot of different ways we we can talk about this, but let's just talk about the, the initial being on scene and some of the struggles you have as a sergeant, possibly a new sergeant or the senior person on scene, and maintaining that balcony approach when you might not even have enough personnel for your initial response. So to your point, one of the trends that we've seen is getting a little, drilling a little deeper is we have supervisors who are getting intimately involved with these calls, almost like they're a line level officer. What I mean by that is, and you brought it up, they're, they're in the basement. They're not up on the balcony at about the 10,000 foot view. And some, if you talk to some of these supervisors, you ask them, hey, why are you managing this call, running this call like you are? Why are you, why do you have the less lethal? Why are you doing things that your officers should be doing? You should be delegating those tasks out during the event. And some of the answers I've gotten because I was teaching recently uh, in Central California, and I and I asked the question. They said, "Well, we're small. You know, if I'm if I'm if I've got three deputies, and that's all I have to respond to this critical incident, I'm going to not just be on the balcony. I'm going to have to be in the basement. And so, you as a supervisor, if you are one of those, have to recognize that you are going to be p- pulling those dual roles for a bit, 
but you also have to know when to pull back. Hey, now I've got five or six people here. I've got enough for a small crisis team and some rear containment. I need to, I need to pull myself back a little bit. So be on the lookout for that as a supervisor and guard against it. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have supervisors who are essentially robbing their own officers of the initiative. And what I mean by that is back up out of a critical incident and just take a radio call. You have supervisors who are running that, those radio calls from beginning to end. They're, they're, they're not running those calls, like showing up and just saying, hey, you guys need anything? No, you're good. Tell me what happened. All right, I'm out of here. It's they're doers. They're doers, doers, doers. Number one, we have so many young officers in patrol right now that supervisors are having to become more involved with them. And so it's created this, this trend where they're just now thinking that they have to do everything. That translates over into critical incidents to where now they're running everything. And it's, it's an issue. I think one of the issues uh, that uh, we've seen or we're trying to address with the critical incidents class is that initial decision of or recognizing do we need to stop the killing stop the dying or is this something that we need to contain or disrupt and and recognizing the role from that supervisor's position is probably um you know one of those key steps do you you know because you're first on scene are you going to intervene or are you going to start coordinating the containment of this issue and start mitigating so it doesn't grow because uh, that's you know, one of our key responsibilities uh, when we first get out there. And I, I work in a small agency, and so it's possible, um, you know, graveyard, you've got a sergeant and four officers, and it'll take a little bit for some deputies to show up to help out. But it doesn't mean that you put yourself in the number one or number two spot. Yeah, I think that's what you're talking about, right? That transition from you're no longer the doer. And if you're not comfortable with that, one, that's just a transition as you change roles right that you have to get used to because we do promote people that are good doers we absolutely do because they get stuff done right but now your job is maybe not to get that job done and team leader and commander we talk about you know switching from an operator to a team leader and then switching from a team leader to a, a commander you, you you have to be farther separate right it's almost indirect influence versus direct influence your sergeant your tls your your frontline sergeant they're going to be directly influencing what happens in that next role, the lieutenant, you're indirectly influencing it. And, the, and those are two things. One, you're not comfortable in your role yet, or two, you're not comfortable with the people you have working for you. And if you're not comfortable with that, it's because you didn't do enough of these pre-event activities. And so now you're trying to micromanage this thing to keep it, to keep it under control and, and, really quickly you can lose control of that situation and get overwhelmed by events it doesn't have to be that very big to uh, lose that so how do we do that as a if you're a sergeant you talked about two things you talked about hey you might have to be the doer in the basement until you get enough people and then you got to pull yourself back and so don't set yourself too forward up into this operation where you can't pull back and get out your whiteboard or your notebook or your command board or your battle board or whatever it is at your police table, whatever it is you like to use to start organizing your resources and really develop, identify what success looks like and then go right to your, your ways and means, right? How are we going to do this and what do I need to get it done? Uh, Chris, you had an example you shared with me the other day 
a little bit higher level, probably more of a lieutenant example, but it, I think it applies to everybody. During a recent crisis response on the other side of uh, the United States, where somebody took basically a, a tactical pause and then got back on the radio and regrouped. And it, it probably felt like hours to them, but in reality, it was seconds. But it, it's what they needed to break their their OODA loop and re, you know, wrap their arms around it. it yeah, it was uh, reviewing the audio from the uh, Surfside condominium collapse. And the first units get on scene. And this is uh, from a fire perspective. Uh, they see what the problem is. They start requesting additional resources. And it, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it happened early in the morning, about 1.30 in the morning. So they show up, they see half the building gone. Uh, they make their declarations and it, everybody's pulling their boots on and, and getting out there as soon as possible. And as you know, more engine companies, more resources start to show up, uh, the battalion uh, chief shows up, they declare their IC location and they're starting to wrap their minds around the problem. And what happens simultaneously is, uh, you know, dispatch gives a countdown of how many minutes since the incident began. Uh, and, you know, that's more for firefighting efforts, but it also uh, creates a, a good timeline if you're reviewing this incident. And, you know, units are showing up, they're recognizing problems, and they're starting to inundate this uh, battalion chief with, with all these questions like, you know, we're at the mass casualty incident, you know, we're too close, we need to establish a staging area. And the, the units are requesting TAC channels for talk arounds, and it starts to become real chaotic. They're, they're stepping on each other. Dispatch is asking questions to this battalion chief. And eventually this battalion chief just says, you know, hold all traffic unless priority. Um, I, I need a minute. And um, you get that radio pause. And then when the, the battalion commander or the battalion chief came back on, it's all right, uh, this unit is responsible for the medical group and your location is gonna be you know, a couple blocks away. They started giving out very specific locations and you can, you can tell, uh, you know, what likely happened besides a deep breath was uh, look at a map real quick uh, and a quick assessment of what resources were already on scene and knowing how many resources have been requested for this type of event. And they started des designating, you know, your law, uh, law enforcement liaison. This is where the staging area is gonna be. You're gonna be the staging manager. And that happened between the 10 and the 20 minute mark on this event. And I, I thought it was a pretty good representation that, you know, when, when a major event happens in your community and you're the supervisor that comes on scene, you don't have to have all these things done in the first three minutes, uh, but there are decisions that are gonna have to be made. And taking that pause uh, to, to understand what your terrain looks like and what your resources are, um, it's sometimes necessary. And after that, things sort of got established and, and it's not that it wasn't chaotic because they still had the uh, threat of collapse that kept coming uh, to them, but it established some order. I like that, that's a great example. And we talk about that a little bit in our team leader and commander classes and just, you're not, you gotta delegate that stuff, right? The more complex the task, the more you have to identify it, put other people in charge of the components and manage them instead of, you know, that's that, uh, hierarchy of structure that you, you have to do. It's, it's really decentralized decision-making, but it still has to have a structure. I think sometimes we forget that. We think decentralized decision-making means everybody just kind of does with the swarming tactic, but in reality, it's I'm pushing those decisions down as far as 
possible to have the best situation, but they're, they're falling under that commander's intent and the, the concept of operations type of stuff. So Marcus, real quick, just one of the, one of the tools that I use uh, is three things I need to do right now. Three things I need to know right now and three people that can act on my behalf. And that's something that I learned that I've used over the years where I'll just start writing it down. Hey, what do I need to know right now? I need to know where's my suspect, where am I, whatever it is. But that is uh, something that Sid taught me a, a while back that has really helped me over the years. And I would really suggest supervisors use it. It's just called the, the rule of three. And I've taken pauses too. I mean, I've said, hey, everybody hold your trap unless urgent. That gets everybody off the air. That lets everybody know, hey, I need a minute here to gain some situational awareness. I'm trying to size this problem up so that I know what I need to prevent the loss of life, great bodily injury. You know, that's, that's always our initial focus of effort. Prevent the loss of life, great bodily injury. This is what I teach supervisors is, is there anything here that I need to prevent the loss of life, great bodily injury? Because what that's going to tell me is how much time I have when I get on scene. So we've got this, this timeline, right, where we're responding to a call. Unless your officers are on scene when this incident pops off, we've got this timeline where we're responding to a call. That's our, that's our discretionary time period. We can do things like gain information and intelligence as much as we can, run premise history on a place if we can. And what that does for you as a supervisor is you have that time to make a decision. When you get on scene, you might have to do something quickly based on less information. And we can get into a whole talk on risk and how we can make a decision based on more or less information and which is better. Um, and it might be something, something worth talking about real quick. But using those tools, the initial focus of effort, rule of three, aligning decision-making authority with situational awareness, those are principles that I've used over the years that have really helped me out, especially when I'm looking at an incident that I've never seen before. And to, to, to Chris's point, these novel events are the ones that are going to challenge us. It's not the simple barricade inside an apartment. It's the ones that we've never seen before that are going to challenge us and where you as a supervisor have to be developing your officers to be complex problem solvers. And we're not seeing a lot of that with supervisors right now. Yeah, great point. So let's, um, you're right, we can talk about that for another 45 minutes, just the, how you how you analyze that. Let's talk a little bit about the next level up. So let's talk about a, a call where patrol gets there, your FTO, your sergeant, your corporal, whatever it is in your organization arrives and starts organizing this and determines that this is going to be a big call. So we can use a SWAT example, disaster response example. It doesn't really matter, but this is going to spin up into, you know, eventually some kind of mutual aid ICS type of deal, but we're not there yet. So let's talk about, say we use a SWAT example, your, your lieutenant's there now, your command post is there, your logistics support's getting there. You're starting to, you develop, you get your briefing officer in a staging area and you start doing those kind of things. Now we have, say a lieutenant rank, depending upon how your organization is structured running this thing or a captain or deputy chief, just depends on how big it is. How can they bridge that gap between the command post and the people on the ground with situational awareness? Because often the frustration in every after action I've ever written 
talks about command and control problems, right? And for me, I think I think you guys would agree, but if you don't, let's talk about it. The majority of those problems cannot be solved once this thing starts. They're all pre-event activities. They're all the, the stuff that's not fun to train, right? So nobody, nobody gets up and says, man, I can't wait to go to command post training today where we do tabletops and dry runs on how to, how to do better succinct radio traffic and develop information versus intelligence and, and identify everyone's roles. Because I think that's the problem is a lot of times we don't identify roles, we assume them, we roll out to this thing and we induce our own friction points inside the command post and with communication. I mean, you're always gonna have friction with moving people and communicating with people not telling what the suspects are doing, just what we do to ourselves. So let's talk a little bit about that and how, how as a leader, that friction point, that the gap between the command post and people on the ground, what can we do, no matter what rank we are, to help, to help reduce that friction during an emergency or crisis, right? Well, we're gonna have all these characteristics of a crisis literally affecting our physiology why we're dealing with this i think from a command post uh, perspective or coming in the command post the, the tool to try and get back on track is establishing that common operational picture and giving situational updates so uh you clarify what the end state is if that needs to be done and what the focus of effort is going to be and any other factors that you become aware of that may have changed uh, any rules of engagement or what a uh, react team uh, may be preparing to do uh, you, you get everybody back on that same page uh, by doing those updates and they you know hopefully they're done at some type of increment uh, throughout the event maybe every 15 minutes or so uh, you're not going to completely mitigate that that friction but by you know expressing what is expected, what, what the commander's intent is. This is what I want to happen, or this is what is going on right now. If you have done some training, then everybody can start working to support that mission. And it's, it's clear. Yeah, and to that, <clears throat> to his point about situational awareness, one of the things is, and I do the same thing, updates are huge. If you are not putting out situational updates, and I'm not just talking as a SWAT commander, I'm talking about as, a, as an incident commander, so everybody on scene is gonna have varying levels of situational awareness. If Marcus, you're gonna show up five minutes before me, I'm showing up 10 minutes later, you're looking at the problem, I'm on a rear containment, our lenses are completely different. And so as a result of that, it becomes very important for an incident commander or a SWAT commander to paint the common operational picture. Situational awareness belongs to the individual. The common operational picture belongs to the group. And that's why that's so important. Uh, you know, he says 15, I'm, I'm every 30 minutes, something gets put out no matter what, or as my rule of thumb is, or as new information becomes available. Whatever you do, just know that how often you're going to be putting those out and write them down. Write them down so you get everybody on the same sheet of music. Everybody knows the focus of effort, what our end state is, and where we're going with this problem. Marcus, to answer your question, how do you how do you bridge that gap or how do you build that? If this is all about trust. If I am a brand new SWAT commander, and this is this happens all over the country with zero SWAT experience, coming into a team with very experienced team leaders and operators and those types of things, I would really suggest that you spend a significant amount of time going over 
what does it look like when, what are you guys going to do when, you know, shots are fired on a hostage problem? Are you going immediately? Are you not? You have to spend time building that trust. You can be in command at the, at the CP and not in control. They miss that a lot. They try and gain that control and they want to look at the problem. One of the things that I've learned over the years is you can take that commander's reconnaissance. Go up, look at the problem, gain some situational awareness, and then go back to the command post. Now you know what it looks like. Marcus, you're right. It, it is boring stuff. It's boring to sit down and go, okay, let's go do a tabletop on this problem. Let's do a decision-making exercise on this problem. But you as a commander and team leader, because you're both responsible for building the trust, you have to spend time on these things to build the trust so that when a window of opportunity presents itself up at the crisis site and suddenly that crisis entry team is launching, you as the commander are not telling them to stop or, hey, what are you guys doing? You just stay silent. You just stay silent and let them do their job. And that goes back to what we were talking about before, those pre-event activities. There's logistics, there's planning, there's training and education, the how versus the why. You have to spend time on that stuff. And we have SWAT commanders and team leaders who are not sitting down with one another. You should be sitting down every training day and going over these things that help build the trust so that when the crisis hits your door, you are making good decisions. And you are letting, as a commander, letting your TLs, your team leaders, make those decisions as well. And there's opportunity there for you know the, the team leader or, or the, the operator level to demonstrate their competencies to these decision-making exercises and to help uh, gain the trust of uh, you know the tactical commander or uh, the supervisor as well by just demonstrating competencies, the ability to do the job, their uh, good decision-making um, chains, you know, their, their if-then, and, you know, recognizing that their actions are, uh, they conform to the agency's expectations, the community's expectations, they're within the capabilities, and, and knowing what those limitations are. I think establishing those parameters and those boundaries are an important part of that uh, communication, and it, it goes both ways. I had an incident happen at my agency last, uh, late last year, where it was, uh, you know, a text to 911 incident, and the uh, victim, she was a potential hostage inside the house. And I don't know, not everyone has text to 911 yet. This was the first kind of incident that we dealt with with text to 911. And we all think, yeah, she's full of it, or she's, you know, she was basically saying she's being held hostage, right? Long story short, SWAT arrives, they're switching out during that transition period, and the potential suspect shows, presents himself outside. And we all know what that is. That's a window of opportunity. The commander in that incident didn't get on the radio, didn't say anything. He had built the requisite trust with those SWAT team members, knew what they were gonna do, knew what exactly what was coming because they had worked together operationally. They had done tabletops. They had done reality-based training scenarios. They had talked about exploiting windows of opportunity a million times. And that window of opportunity was exploited. Suspect was taken into custody. Hostages were rescued. It was crystal clear. But what nobody sees on the back end of that is the hundreds of hours of training that it took 
to get to that point where the SWAT commander didn't even have to get on the radio, didn't even have to say anything. He knew exactly what was going to occur and it happened. That's where you have to be. That's where you have to get to a point where everybody knows what, what's going to happen and you're not getting on the radio because the SWAT commander could have gotten on the radio. Hey, do this, do that. Align your decision-making authority with situational awareness. If you're looking at the problem, I might be in command. I'm not in control. You are. Make those calls. You're the team leader. Do it. Yeah, and that goes right back to pre-event stuff, right? Your, your pre-event conversations, your training, your values, your tabletops, your debriefs, you know, all these yeah. things we can learn from history because it just keeps repeating itself over and over again. And most of these incidents are all leadership issues, all of them, whether it's on the SWAT side of the house, it's on the patrol side of the house, it all comes back to some type of leadership issue. People are not, and, and especially with everything going on right now that we see nationwide, I'm seeing this all over the country. I can tell you from Alaska to Texas to out east, timidity is huge right now with supervisors. They're timid. They're mischaracterizing things because they're afraid of making a mistake. They're afraid of being the next person that's on TV. And we have to get away from that. And you have to invest time in yourself as a supervisor to educate yourself and to train yourself. I teach the critical incident course for NTOA. You guys have the one for Cato. If you talk to supervisors in those courses, they're going to tell you, yeah, we don't get any training as a supervisor. I mean, what, think about it as a sergeant. What, did we, what training did we get? We got about an hour of some crappy critical incident training in sergeant school, and then we never heard a peep about it again. And we're just expected to what? To be able to do that stuff? You have, if you're not investing in yourself and you just expect that you're going to respond to these incidents in a coordinated manner, good luck to you. It's not going to happen. And you're going to be the ones that they're writing after action reports about and not the good ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would prefer not to have my name in an after action report that everyone studies for years on end, unless I did something good. Right. Um, but that's a great point being timid. Right. And, and uh, currently in the state of California, we're watching these uh, cases, criminal cases go go through the system. So we're going to see how the courts define some of that stuff. We're, you know, we're looking at 835. We're looking at time and terrain and, and you know, what, what we call de-escalation. You know, how, how are we giving time and distance to people? So wholeheartedly agree. Uh, Chris, what do you think about that, buddy? What are you hearing the guys talk about in Team Leader and, and uh, some of your experiences, especially recently um, going through SLP, talking to some of really... I describe SLP as uh, an SLI. You get a lot of good information. You read a lot of good books. You learn a lot of stuff. In an SLP, you get to meet the people they wrote the books about. And they tell you how they did it from their own words. And they often will share experiences with you that they wouldn't write down because they're difficult to share. But what do you think about timidity? I guess Travis calls it uh, timidity or being timid. Uh, I, I think it's going to backfire in our profession. I know we're redefining what the society wants us to do. And so that's always a tough problem. But in the end, the public expects us to fulfill our duty. And if we don't do that, it will be, in my opinion, seen as cowardice. And they won't forgive us for that. So there's, there's a balance there. 
Yeah, I mean, Travis touched on it a little bit, and it, it comes down to edu education and experience, and, and you can build that experience through some of those uh, decision-making exercises. Um, we had the privilege of having, uh, you know, Chief Hillman talk to us, and he talked about, you know, in all the years that he'd been in law enforcement, there had been no training about how to respond to a pandemic, and so everybody had to sort of relearn what this response is going to look like, what can and can't be done, what the risks are. Uh, you can't ignore it. You can't shy away from it. You have to recognize that there's a problem, know what the limitations are, and start seeking out information. And the same thing goes for, you know, somebody who's newly promoted and finding themselves in one of these other decision-making positions that, you know, is facing a critical incident. You have to do that training. You have to do the work ahead of time. And if you're, you know, listening to this and wondering what that looks like, one of the things that uh, we tried out is we ran a series of um, reality-based training scenarios and uh, looked at what the decision-making steps were and where the strengths and weaknesses were. And then we built tabletop exercises uh, off of those and, and ran them with all the supervisors and have integrated that into um, you know, it can, it can be something that's in a monthly sergeant's meeting where you spend 10 minutes going through a, a tabletop exercise, but you, um, you put them in a position where they can make these decisions and uh, challenge some of their assumptions and uh, have an opportunity for growth and, and recognize what those parameters and boundaries are, what the different watch commanders that might be working. And, and you, you get to find where the comfort levels are and we're, the deficiencies are, and then you can continue to uh, train towards uh, working um, to repair those or to, to strengthen those areas. And that process uh, not only builds trust among peers, uh, but also uh, subordinates and supervisors. Uh, we've seen as a result of some of those uh, tabletop exercises where outside of those meetings, they're looking to seek answers. They're trying to get uh, the what ifs answered, and that builds that Rolodex that you can refer back to when these incidents occur. And you, you have a structure of, uh, you know, how to approach the problem and uh, not get overcome by events. One of the other things, Marcus, just to just to pay attention to is you as a supervisor need to understand how decisions are made from the command post to those that are on the ground. What I mean by that is there are several different models how things work throughout the country. And, and here in California, you guys tell me, you know, I haven't, I haven't taught in California in a bit, but there are two different models when we talk about SWAT teams and how decisions are made. So there's a model, and I got a buddy in Phoenix, when you have a critical incident that happens, you have, you know, let's say you got a hostage problem, at a convenience store. This happened to them. I'm the incident commander from patrol. SWAT gets there. I turn that tactical problem over to the SWAT commander. All tactical decisions are made by the SWAT commander. He does not ask me as the incident commander, hey, this is what I'm going to do, and I have to approve that. What do we do here in California? We pass those decisions through the incident commander. There's pros and cons to both models. I actually like what I call the Phoenix model simply because they're a full-time team and they know what they need to do. You could get an incident commander who has zero SWAT experience and you're telling them, hey, this is what we're gonna do. And it's a completely 
viable tactical option and they don't like it because it doesn't sound good. Whatever model you use, just be familiar with it. You have to understand how decisions are made. Who has decision-making authority on a sniper-initiated assault? Who is going to be the final call on that? Is it the SWAT commander? Is it the incident commander? Who's in charge of what? These, because, you know, a lot of incident commanders just want to abdicate any form of responsibility during an incident because they just are not comfortable with it. Understand your system, how it works. In California, that, and you guys can chime in on this, it's incident commander has the final say on what happens. Unless you have something that happens right then and there that needs to be reacted to. Is that what you guys see? Yeah, and usually it's uh, normally like, hey, I'm your subject matter expert. This is what I want to do. Do you approve this plan or not? Yes, I do. Or, well, you know, what about this or that? Or, you know, a couple of questions. It depends on uh, the comfortable, the experience, the education, the comfort level of, of risk that that incident commander has. And the more experience they have, the, the shorter those conversations are. Right. Because generally they understand what's going on. And that comes back to the trust piece. You have to build that trust with whoever is, has decision-making authority. So there, just be aware that there are different models out there. And I see this, I've talked to dozens of SWAT guys, like I don't understand how decisions are made. What if this happens? What if that happens? Well, that just tells me you have not spent any time in reality-based training scenarios, decision-making exercises, tabletops, actual live operations, understanding how your decision-making process works. And I, you know, I think you guys would agree that reality-based training scenarios where you've got CNT, the SWAT team out there, maybe your drone team. And you guys are working through those friction points, those self-induced friction points and how the decisions are getting made. That's where you got to be working out that friction. And we, we don't do a good job of it, I think. Tying it back into TL, when we have the uh, discussions about compromise authority, uh, you can really see uh, the, the separation of teams that are more mature. They have established SOPs and TTPs, the concept for somebody coming to the team leader class as an assistant team leader, or even as a senior operator, uh, they understand compromise authority, what it entails and, and what that allows them to do. Whereas the folks that don't have any reps in that area, they haven't discussed it. They're, you know, they come up at the breaks and they're looking for guidance. They're like, I don't even know what this looks like. Um, you know, who establishes parameters and, and it, it, you know, we start with, it, explaining what it is and then making sure that they start having these discussions immediately with their tactical commander and the incident commander so the education goes both ways because they may have uh, an experienced tactical commander incident commander and it's just this atl uh, hasn't had uh, hasn't been in those positions or hasn't had you know the experience yet shame on the organization for not covering it in training ahead of time but that that's one of the ways to sort of uh, re resolve that is having those discussions, understanding what the parameters are and what the extent of the authority is that's been uh, granted to them. Yeah, I, uh, I agree, well put. You've seen it as well. We've both had the conversations where people are asking these questions, what does this look like? And we can, we can give them the textbook answer and we can convey our personal experiences, but they're gonna be significantly influenced by their organizational culture. And so it's, it's, um, it's, much easier to learn that when you have an organization that has already 
had those discussions and done training in that area than trying to start from scratch. Yeah, agreed. I think it's a good place to uh, just stop that conversation. I hope that we built a little bit uh, better structure behind the command and control conversation we had on our last podcast. I appreciate the, the practical tips you each gave and your experience and things that we can do now. And you both said, I think all three of us agree, these things aren't glamorous, They're not as fun as shooting. They're not as fun as sim scenario. They're not as fun as any of that. But if you look at history, look at the problems we have in major tactical events, they're always in the top three is command and control. Hey, I want to uh, end this uh, on leadership defined and uh, maybe get your thoughts. This is from uh, Colonel Anderson gave this to me, leadership and command at senior levels. It's uh, FM 22-103. It's from June of 87, and it starts off with a Clausewitz quote and a Fuller quote, and then it goes right into leadership defined. Leadership and command at senior levels is the art of direct and indirect influence and the skills of creating the conditions for sustained organizational success to achieve the desired result. Its purpose is to produce decisive results at large unit level. Leadership and command at senior levels is the wellspring from which all sustained unit actions flow. Only the coordinated action of many units combined over time ensures success in battles and campaigns. So that was pretty interesting. The art of direct and indirect influence and the skills of creating the conditions for sustained organizational success to achieve the desired result. And that's really what we're talking about, right? As leaders, we have to create those conditions before the event takes place. Any yeah, thoughts on that? Yeah, within that quote, I mean, it's cited the time that takes to, uh, you know, build that uh, experience uh, for those leaders and organizations of all sizes. So there has to be an investment in that training. You have to have these discussions in advance, uh, work out the kinks, work out the friction points, and put yourself in a position to have greater success when the incidents occur. It's all about the pre-event activity. If you're not spending the requisite time training, educating, planning, getting your logistics squared away. Don't expect a, your event performance to be great. Yeah, we can't wing it. If you're, a crap, if you're a crappy leader, you know it. I don't have to tell you. Yeah, deep down, you might know it. <laughs> Doesn't mean you walk around telling people, but you might know it. Nope, but you know um, it. You do. Right beside this column is a quote by J.C. Fuller. The more mechanical become the weapons with which we fight, the less mechanical must be the spirit which controls them. That's some Sun Tzu stuff right there. So not relying on technology and the latest tactic, but you've got to be able to flow with what's going on. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.